Good morning. It is great to be here and great to be with you. You know, as I was reading through this passage, um, I thought, in many cases, our current circumstances don't allow us to see the big picture. And this, this passage models that there, there are some circumstances that we're going to read about. And the message is, spoiler alert, is that Jesus Christ is with us in the minutiae with our current circumstances, but he is the big picture. So as we're reading, uh, you can follow along on page 1142 in your Bible, up on the screen, or um, just listen along with me. John 11, 20 through 53. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would have died, would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here, calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Current circumstance. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him? But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead for four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you. You always hear me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around me that they may believe that you sent me. And when he said these, when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! And the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Now many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. 
But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go like this, go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. I would again call that a current circumstance. (laughs) But one of them, Caiaphas, who was a high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. God's word for his people. For hundreds of years, someone has climbed a pulpit somewhere and announced to the congregation, Christ is risen. And the congregation has often responded with what? So what? I don't mean that facetiously, but so what that 2,000 years ago, somebody rose from the dead? You're 2,000 years later. What difference does it make to you other than a, a distant hope that one day when you die, you may raise, rise from the dead? Is there anything else that that resurrection is supposed to say to you? Is there anything more particular than the griefs and losses of your own experiences in which Jesus could walk into and that resurrection and this resurrection could speak? I hope so. Because if all you're hoping for is a good end result, then you're missing the power of the gospel for your life here and now. Jesus is walking into a grief-stricken situation. And you can imagine it. A dear brother, and I don't mean that in a spiritual way, a a physical brother, Lazarus, has died. Died probably not a particularly fast or painless death. And the sisters are grieving. Mary and Martha, we've seen them before and we'll see them again. They're grieving. They're weeping. They're asking the questions that everybody asks when someone dies Unexpectedly or expectedly. Why? Why now? Is there anything that can be done? What lessons am I supposed to learn from this death? And enters Jesus. Jesus comes in and he's going he's gonna to come in and wield four things. He's going to come in and do four things. He's going to... He's going to give some truth to the situation. He's going to uh, uh, wield some anger about the situation. He's going to weep in this situation. And he's going to give grace in this situation. A number of years ago in my last ministry, I had a friend who 
was a deputy U.S. marshal. He came to Christ uh, through the ministry there in Alabama. And one morning, I get a phone call to go to his house, which wasn't terribly far from where the church was. And so I drove, and as I got closer to his neighborhood, I couldn't get in his neighborhood. There were so many law enforcement people there. Because he was a, a federal cop, uh, there was the, both the FBI and the U.S. Marshal Service there. And because it's the state of Alabama, there were state troopers there and detectives. And because it happened in one city, there was the local police. And they were taking up so much room that I had to park outside the neighborhood and walk in to the neighborhood to his house. And as I walk up the driveway, it literally has got a hundred police officers who are standing outside. And not one of them is happy. They're very, very sad. They're asking questions like, did you see it coming? Did you see the signs? Did you know what was going on? You see that morning, Greg woke up and for whatever reason, because he didn't leave us a note, he took his a service pistol and turned it in on himself and killed himself. And left everyone, including his wife and his young child, wondering. Because he, he took all of his reasons with him. He took all of the information that the rest of us were asking. Why? We could have used this. Because we were all asking the same questions. Did you see it coming? Is there something that we could have done? Is there something that we can do now? Because everyone doesn't know what to do next. And yet Jesus has these four things. That if we understand them and we appropriate them, that we not only look to the end, but also the present, the here and now. With all of the losses, and all of the grief that we experience in the here and now. Again, I'm not going to give them to you in the order in which they come because I want to show you how they adhere together. In order to do that, I'm going to take them out of their order. We're going to first see uh, tears. And then we're going to see the anger. Then we're going to hear the truth. And then we're going to get His grace. So with that in mind, the very first thing I want to draw your attention to is not at the beginning of the passage, but actually in the middle of the passage. Mary and Martha, ironically, ask the same question. Now, you're looking for the question. It's an implied question. They both make the same statement to Jesus. Jesus has been told four days ago that Lazarus is sick. And would he come as soon as possible? And when Jesus shows up, and you can go back up into the passage that wasn't read to you, that when Jesus finally shows up, it's four days later, and, and Lazarus has been dead for most of that time. And they've buried him in a tomb. And so when Jesus shows up, he's got a dead friend, a dead brother, not his, but the girl's. And so they, they say both this. Look at verse 32. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. What's the implied question? Where were you? You could have stopped this. 
What was more important than Lazarus? What was more important in your schedule that you couldn't been here to prevent his death? Mary shows up. In fact, they all kind of assume that Mary has gone to the tomb to weep. But she had heard Jesus was there, so she comes to Jesus weeping. And all Jesus can do is weep with her. Shortest verse in the Bible. Everybody can memorize this today. Verse 35. Jesus wept. The only words that he utters to Mary at this point is, where have you laid him? Why the weeping? Why why does Jesus weep? Why in the world would someone weep? He's got two things that you and I never come to a funeral with. He's got two pieces of knowledge, two pieces of information that we don't enter in with. And the first one is why this happens. That is, we ask, we know often the answer to the question why so-and-so died, why Greg died. We know the answer to the specific. What we don't often think about is why in general does everyone die? We don't tend to focus on the big picture because of the pain of the individual, of the specific, of the narrow experience. And we don't ask the bigger question that Jesus knows the answer to, that death is not your friend. That death is your enemy and he's a thief that steals every life in this world. Everyone you know, everyone you love, including you, will die. And who causes that death? But death itself. And death entered this world because of sin. Now, I know that's not a popular word in the 21st century. But we, humanity, brought death into it. And ever since that moment, death has been taking us out of it. One by one. Hundreds by hundreds. Thousands by thousands. Millions by millions. And Jesus knew that. When he got to the tomb, he... He may not have known why Lazarus specifically died at that particular time, but he certainly knew why death had come and taken Lazarus from him, from Mary, and from Martha. But there's another piece of knowledge that he had. Not only did he know that death in general is out to get us, it's not paranoia if someone really is out to get you, but he also knew this. (laughs) He knows that he's about to raise Lazarus from the dead in a few moments. Can you imagine going to a funeral? Or me walking into that house knowing full well that Greg was going to walk out with me. Or that the person who's laying in the casket is going to get up. 
It's not a Halloween prank. It's a resurrection. Jesus knew that he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead and he still wept. Why? Because he enters in. Jesus brings grief to grief. He brings grief into grief. If there's weeping, he brings weeping in. In loss, there's a profound sense of emptiness. And Jesus knows that grief is what fills that emptiness. And that's tears. What do we learn from that? We've got two things that I, I, just from this ministry of tears that we need to learn. The very first one is nothing is wrong with weeping. It is not a sign of weakness, but of strength. I don't know how it happened, but it's part of the American culture that you buck up. You get through it. You turn the corner. And yet even our Savior weeps at death. It's not a lack of information on his part. I already told you he has more information than we do. It's not a lack of spiritual maturity. It's not that the spiritually weak cry and the spiritually strong buck it up. It's not a lack of faith. Jesus is not lacking faith here. Mary is not lacking faith. It is a ministry of tears. It is bringing grief into grief. The second lesson, if we're not going to just learn that there's nothing wrong with weeping, we need to understand there's a profound drive in the human heart to fix things, to see the brokenness and want to make it better. That's an incredible drive, an incredible need on our part to make sure that everything is okay. Mary loved and, and cared for Lazarus. And yet, she too is wondering, Jesus, if he had just gotten here, he wouldn't be dead. And before he, he raises Lazarus from the dead, he begins the ministry of entering into her grief. Many will try to fix the sorrow of others feel. But truth without tears is not true ministry. We undervalue just grieving with people who are grieving. We are to enter in. This is what community means. We, we, we bat that around like it is uh, the ugly uh, child that nobody wants. The idea of what community really is. But one thing community is... It is shared grieving. It is entering into one another's brokenness. But obviously, not alone. What I mean by that is Jesus didn't just bring tears, did he? He brought anger. And you say, Bruce, I I just don't see the anger. Okay, well, let me show it to you. I want to show you several words that I believe are mistranslated. Not because of ill intent, but simply because I think 
They're trying to make us feel better about Jesus. The first one is in verse 33, where it says, deeply moved. It says it again in verse 38, deeply moved again. The second one I want to draw your attention to is back in verse 33, where it says he's greatly troubled. So if you'll stay parked at verse 33, I'll, I'll, I'll give you the accurate translation of both of those concepts that I think that the translators were trying to spare your feelings. The deeply moved of this passage in the original language means to groan. And it says that Jesus groans twice at the news, at the grief of Mary and the, and the death of Lazarus. That deep within him, there was a groaning, audible enough that the writers included it twice. And then, and greatly troubled. This is the one that I think is the one that, ca- that they're trying to cause your, your feelings not to be hurt. In the original language, to say something that is greatly troubled, it means to roar, to snort with anger, to quake with rage. To think that Jesus snorts, that's just not becoming. To think that our Jesus quakes with rage? He's mild-mannered. Have you not seen the movies of Jesus? Have you not seen all the paintings? He's so serene. The only time you see Jesus with any emotion is when he's overturning the tables. But for whatever reason, the translators wanted to go with something that's a little more amenable to you. That our Savior quaked and roared with anger at something. But why? And what or with whom is Jesus so mad? He's not mad at the victims. Let's don't pick on the victims here. Jesus is not saying, Lazarus, if you just would have waited a little longer till I got there, this wouldn't have been a problem. He's not, he's not angry because Greg took his own life. He's not blaming the victim. In order to know who the victim is, you have to know who the perpetrator is. Of course, Greg pulled the trigger. But if death had not entered this world, Greg would still be with us today, no matter what he tried to do. And no matter how much Lazarus tried to hold on, he had an enemy that was trying to take him and did take him from this world. That enemy is called death. Jesus is not mad at a victim. He's not, he's not angry at God because God's all sovereign and all loving and, and lets this kind of stuff happen in his world. He's angry at death because death is taking every one of us out of this world. No matter how young you are or how old you are, or how wealthy you are, how poor you are, how smart you are, or whatever it is, you cannot cheat death. Death is going to get you. Now, if that doesn't scare you, or at least cause you a little anxiety, you need a piece of chocolate to wake up. 
There's coffee out there for you. Death has entered this world as the result of this world being profoundly broken. It wasn't the way it was meant to be. It wasn't the way it was supposed to be. You and I were meant to last forever. And we know that. We have within us a faint desire to last. That comes from the fact that we were supposed to last. You don't desire to last unless there was a time where you were supposed to last. You go to the gym, some of you. Some of you even eat right. That can't be fun. You're doing all the right things. You can tell. We look at you and marvel. But you are not going to cheat death out of one day. No matter what you do. It is here because of us. And it is here for us. We brought the monster into our world and the monster is looking to get us. Now, how many people wanted to come to an Easter service and get that? (laughs) I just want you to know that Jesus has a right and a good reason to be angry because death has taken his friend and it has caused his other friends to grieve the loss of Lazarus. Here's the good news. I know you were waiting, but I need you to feel the weight before you got the good news. I am the resurrection and the life. You see that in verse 25? I am the resurrection. What in the world is he saying? In the midst of telling her the meaning of Uh, of the big picture of death and I'm going to raise Lazarus from the dead. And and you remember what Martha says to that? This is the truth. You know, remember what Martha says to that? Yeah, I know he's going to resurrect on the last day. That's kind of the way we get the big picture is that one day everything's going to work out. That's not what he's saying. He says, out of this tragedy, something better is going to happen. Out of the cross comes a resurrection. That's the gospel. We struggle sometimes. Can, can we get our mind around what the gospel really is saying? The gospel can be reduced to this. Life from death. Death is our enemy. Death is the monster that we brought into the world out of its cage. And it is loose on our planet. The resurrection is to defeat death and put it back in its cage. To arrest death. If we don't learn that lesson, every time someone dies, we're going to learn alternative lessons. If we don't get this, we're going to try to make a meaning or a purpose out of every death that has nothing to do with us and the hope that someday we too will rise from the dead. If death had not come into the world, Lazarus would still be alive. Your parents, your brothers and sisters, your children, your friends, they'd all still be alive. Be angry, but be angry at the right thing. 
death. He wields truth. We hear truth here. He begins in verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. And then he says, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? We know weeping is good because I already told you that. Being angry at the right thing is a good thing. And you know that happens when grief subsides a few days later, angry comes in right behind it. But the greater resource to deal with tragedies like this is you have to believe. Jesus doesn't merely offer a consolation. That's what the people do. You read that. They, they give Mary and Martha a consolation. Jesus gives them a resurrection. Now, we know that Lazarus will die again. So it's only a foretaste. It's only an appetizer. But one of the things that Jesus doesn't promise is that he's going to take you away from all of this. And we get that by and by, pie in the sky attitude that all of this is bad. And he's going to take us to the good. But the Bible teaches, no, yes, things have gone wrong here. Things are messed up here. But this is our father's world. And he says, for I so loved the world... I gave my only son. You and I get such a myopic experience about our faith. What I mean by that is that we tend to look at the cross and we look at the resurrection through only our eyes. And therefore, we begin to think that Jesus came to earth to live the life that we should have lived and died the death that we should have died just for me and only me and maybe for you if I love you. Jesus came, according to John 3.16, for the world, because he loves the world. It is too small a thing for a God to die and be resurrected just for you, or just a nation. The nation of Israel thought that, you, you hear it in this passage, is it, is it right for one person to die or for a whole nation to perish? It's too small a thing for Jesus to come just for Israel. He's come for the whole world to make all things new. Where in the world are we supposed to get a picture of what that means? But by a resurrection, the first fruits. What does he mean? What does he mean that he's come to bring a resurrection? The way I want to describe it is a nightmare becomes untrue. That's, that's really what Dostoevsky is trying to communicate in The Brothers Karamazov. He writes in that, that, that long, long novel, this few sentences. I believe like a child that suffering will be healed and made up for. Wouldn't that be great? That all of the humiliating absurdity of human contradictions will vanish like a pitiful mirage. That in the world's finale, at the moment of eternal harmony, something so precious will come to pass that it will suffice. It will comfort all resentments. It will atone for all the crimes, for all the blood that's been shed. That it will make it not only possible to forgive, but to justify everything that has happened. What is he saying? Simply this. Everything that is ever bad that has happened to you, Everything that is bad that has happened to our world, he's going to make untrue. 
The cross was bad. And he made it untrue through a resurrection. That's what Tolkien's getting at. When Tolkien wants to describe this idea of making all things new, he has Gandalf coming back to the group. And what what do they say? It's all attributed to Sam Ganshi when Sam says, Gandalf, I thought you were dead. I thought I was dead. Is everything sad going to become untrue? Do you believe that? If you believe this, you believe the gospel. Because that's the essence of what the gospel is. That death is going to be defeated, but not only defeated, but it is going to be made up for. And it's going to be made untrue. All of the losses. The last thing he wields is grace for everyone. How do I know this is going to happen? How do you know? The last line that Keith read to us. From that day, verse 53, from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus knew that by raising Lazarus from the dead meant his own death. Jesus knew that the only way to interrupt this funeral was to cause his own. Jesus knew that the only way to bring Lazarus out of the grave was to bury himself in it. Christianity is the only religion on the face of the planet that has a son of God die. To have a God who experienced the tragic loss of his own son. I don't know why. I don't know why God has not ended suffering yet. But I I know this. He would not waste the death of his own son. Because he has not yet ended human suffering yet does not mean and it is not proof that he won't. If God is all powerful and if God is all loving, then God has too much skin in the game to let suffering go on forever. And to prove, to prove he won't, three days after his own death, after death took him out of this world, He came back alive. He rose from the dead as the first fruits, the down payment, the deposit on our own resurrection. The resurrection, not just of you as an individual, but of the whole planet. This is our Father's world. That's why we say Christ is risen. And Christ is risen indeed. This is what Easter is about. Not not just simply some distant future. But the present and and right now, the tragedies that we experience. You notice these two ladies ask the same question. Same implied question of Jesus. They both say, Jesus, where were you? If you were here, he wouldn't have died. And Martha, he gives her truth. Mary, he weeps with her. He will always give you what you need in the dosage you need it in the order in which you need it and when you need it I didn't say when you want it in order to make sense of the losses you have to pull back and see I have to pull back and see and believe 
That's what we're doing this morning. We're believing. And we're asking the Lord, I believe, but help me with my unbelief. Because the tragedies keep coming. And they keep getting more personal until they become your own. And the answer to the question is, do I believe? On this Easter, this might be the only Easter you get, if that's not morbid enough. But this might be it for you. Do you believe? There is never a better time than now. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the men and women in this room who love you dearly. That cry out, I believe, but help me with my unbelief because the tragedies keep pressing in. The the losses keep piling up. My own body is leaving me. My own body is breaking down. How in the world do I face those losses? And you have showed us this morning with tears with anger at death, with truth. I am the resurrection and the life and with grace. We know it's true because you have already defeated death. And because you live, we will live too. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.